written by David in repentance after his sin with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. This is the word of the Lord. David and Bathsheba. It's a familiar tale all about one of the most decisive moments in the life of King David. This episode is an aberration. It's not the norm for David's life. In the many remarkable stories of 1st and 2nd Samuel up to this point, David has been awesome. The account of the story of David and Bathsheba begins in the 11th chapter of 2 Samuel. In the time of year when kings go on military campaign, David's in his palace. This is a bad sign. It's spring and armies are on the move again, but David is lounging in the palace, even though his troops and his army are besieging a major Ammonite city. David has sent out his army, but he isn't with them. He's idle, leaving the important leadership role to others. This is a big change. He's been a warrior, starting with his young victory over Goliath. David's a soldier, a fighter, so why is he staying home in palace luxury when the fighters are out on campaign? He isn't taking up his weapon or providing leadership. Watch what the consequences are. We're told he wakes up late in the afternoon. 
many Mediterranean cultures have a siesta mentality when a rest break is taken at midday. And that's what's going on here. But David seems to have taken a very long siesta, just lazing around the palace. Now he goes up onto the roof of the palace, surveying his realm. It obviously has a flat roof, which is familiar to those of us in New Mexico. So there's this leisure space up there, a place where he can walk around. Think about what's going on with David mentally luxuriating in the lordship of Israel without providing the more strenuous leadership that would be expected, he looks out on what he rules. The palace is at a high point in Jerusalem, and he literally looks down on everyone else. It's not like at this moment he's obsessing on being a great servant of God with a heart for the Lord He's more in a mode of wallowing in his own glory and power and prestige, focusing on his own lordship. At his best, David has obeyed God, seeking him with a true heart. But now his heart wanders and he places himself as lord at the center of things. Just the opening of the story should let us know that nothing good is going to come of this. Fellow sinners, this is what we all do. Instead of focusing on the Lord's leadership, we go through periods of self-importance and self-indulgence, putting ourselves, our desires, our pleasures at the center of things. We drift from God's will. Our own will becomes our God. It's folly, and inevitably we stumble and fall. So that's where David is. And he gets in serious trouble. He spies the beautiful Bathsheba as she bathes, which is to say he got a good look. This should make us all uncomfortable. David's a peeper looking down into the private courtyard of someone's home. Not only is this creepy, he doesn't limit himself to being a voyeur. He sends someone to find out who she is. Now, most of you know I like to show you great artworks. And some of the greatest painters have lent their brushes to this story. However, I really can't show those works today. (laughs) I don't think I want the email. So here is a heavily cropped image of Bathsheba, (laughs) as painted by Rembrandt. You can Google Bathsheba Rembrandt on your own to see the full painting. Bathsheba is married to Uriah, one of David's military officers who's out in the field, as he should be. With Uriah conveniently out of the picture, David sends for Bathsheba. This is not some long-simmering love affair finally consummated. Remember, when he sees her, David must send someone out to figure out who she is. They've never met. 
We should not imagine her complicit. Scripture says he sent messengers and took her. Bathsheba is the beauty who is used and abused by David. This is the story of a powerful man using a woman for his own gratification without regard for her soul, marriage, reputation, or emotional well-being. There's no closeness, no relationship, no conversation here. Just David's lust. He also compromises his own reputation forever. You know what happens next, right? Bathsheba ends up pregnant, at which point David scrambles to cover his act. Summoning Bathsheba's dutiful husband Uriah from the battlefield, David tries to cover up his crime. The plan is that once Uriah is back in Jerusalem, back in his home with Bathsheba, he will enjoy the company of his beautiful wife. When her pregnancy progresses then, Uriah and everyone else will expect the child is Uriah's. But Uriah is so high-minded, so honorable, that he foils the deceit. With his troops out in the field, true blue Uriah will not partake of the self-indulgence of laying with his wife. Yet David's doing all this, and he's the commander-in-chief. The contrast between the honorable and the scuzzy is obvious to us. But it seems to go right past David. If he even gives it a thought, nothing in his actions indicates this. Uriah's words and actions should convict David of his own poor conduct, but David shows no humility or repentance. David's frustrated in his scheme to get Uriah to go home to Bathsheba, and so he moves on now to an even more filthy plan. He sends Uriah with a message to the ruthless military leader in the field, Joab. The message to Joab, the order of the king, is that Uriah is to be placed in the front line of battle, and then the other troops will pull back. David has Uriah killed. And others end up dead in the plot, too. David uses all his authority and power to get what he wants and keep it all a secret. As far as the story's gone so far, it seems like David has it all worked out. But 2 Samuel chapter 11 ends with the line, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Of course, none of this is a secret from God. How astounding that David fails to consider this. So the Lord sends his prophet Nathan to call David to account. A cagey Nathan pretends to bring a case for adjudication before the king, presenting his case in the form of a parable about a rich man and a poor man. The rich man has great flocks and herds of his own, but he takes the only ewe lamb of the poor man so he can feed it to a traveler. Of course, the rich man represents David with his many wives and multiple concubines, who has now vilely taken the one and only wife of Uriah. 
after David hears this story, he lacks the insight to realize it's really all about him. His temper flares and he declares, the man who has done this deserves to die. The irony is thick. And then Nathan, rather courageously, I think, declares, you are the man. Then Nathan lists in gory detail the evil done by David in the eyes of God. The most amazing thing happens after that. David does not argue. He doesn't make excuses. I have sinned against the Lord, he admits. David now sees what's obvious to us. Without God as Lord, David has become a tyrant. He's been so wrapped up in himself that he's been oblivious to this fact. Now David's yanked back to reality, to his filthiness in the eyes of God. So, what are we to get out of this story? Think about who David was. He was the man after God's own heart. Those words are in Acts 13.22. He's the one designated by God to be the king. That story is in 1 Samuel 16. Yet even he sins horribly, and he must endure the horrible consequences of that sin. This is the tale of a life being lived as if there is no God, and it's a cautionary tale. It is possible for someone who has lived much of life in faith to go through such a period, even though the person had previously sought the Lord. So, if even David falls into abysmal temptation and selfishness, who are we to think we're above such awfulness ourselves? Who are we to think our secret past sins lay hidden. We should not be fooled into thinking that such actions are, just because they're not widely known to other human beings, that the consequences of that sin have been evaded. Do you remember what David was doing when this evil chain of choices begins? He was at home. Even in his own house, David is tempted and decides to sin. It's not like he is out prowling the streets looking for new ways to sin. What temptations must we guard against in our own day? Is it possible to sin in our own homes? Do TV and the internet provide temptations? Are we heartless and selfish in our relationships? With David, one sin follows the other. This is true for us, too. In fact, the cover-up may even require some worse sin. David's cover-up brings murder. Remember noble Uriah? He's right in front of David, doing all the right things. He's the example of good behavior, which is ignored. Are we the same way? Do we ignore the example of others, examples which could 
be applied to our own lives. Each of us has around us examples of godly behavior. And we're surrounded by some pretty negative examples, too. Sometimes a negative example can be even more powerful if we look and think. So what does David do in response to Nathan's pronouncement? He accepts the consequences and turns back to God, acknowledging his awful sin. David is a model of repentance. The 51st Psalm puts it down for the ages. I read those words a few minutes ago. We have David's own words of repentance in this psalm. How remarkable that these words have been preserved for over 3,000 years. That's nothing short of a miracle from God. So we might ask, why have the words of the 51st Psalm been preserved for us? So we can learn from them. Psalm 51 expresses the prayer of a repentant heart. David repents deeply in his confession. We too will sin and we too must confess deeply. Even God's chosen king fell into terrible sin. David, whom Paul calls a man after God's own heart. David, whom the Lord himself has chosen to become king. David, into whose lineage Christ will come. Like David, our brokenness is no secret from God. No one's immune from temptation. No one is immune from the horrible fall into sin. We bring our brokenness to the Lord Jesus Christ, laying it out honestly, confessing it in humility. We should feel great shame in all our sin, and yet we also should have confidence in the forgiveness promised to us in Scripture. 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9 tells us, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If it's been a long time since we've connected with the great shame of our sin, then it's time for some serious reflection. And here's another thought. If we're having trouble believing that full forgiveness is granted by God for even our most hideous sins... It's time to dig into scripture for that assurance. David's story and his sins of adultery and murder teach us that however we might fall, yet still we can be restored and forgiven by faith and through God's unearned grace, we receive this great gift. Amen.